Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to the teaching, Building Generationally Kingdom Management Part 1. This is session number three of six. I pray that you've uh, listened to the first two. If you haven't, uh, the, the videos for those teachings is in your email reminder. Each month, you get a reminder email about this event. There are links there. There's also links to the notes. So I want to encourage you to download those notes as well. So let me pray. and We'll get started. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for the richness of your word and the challenge of learning to think with you as we consider how to live in your universe. Give us grace, much grace, Father, to go deeper with you and give us grace to embrace your truth in all its fullness and to live it out well for your glory. So we commit ourselves to you and we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is session three, and I just want to remind you of the where we're going in our journey. This is all about how to rule, that is, recognize enduring purpose, understanding C4, people are the building blocks, lead by serving, engage in generational transfer, and then building multi-generational organizations to rule. Of course, we're recognizing the power of the creation mandate to guide us in how we are to think about life, all of life. Uh, we all tend, and I'm speaking, I should say, I I tend to think very dualistically, even though I know better. I know that's not the proper way to think. It's very easy to think dualistically. You may suffer the same problem. So when you read scripture, uh, without thinking about it, there is this dualistic hermeneutic that comes on your mind, and you you twist and distort and compartmentalize scripture, and you don't see the full breadth of what it says. So what we want to do tonight is try to stretch ourselves to think more biblically than perhaps we are used to thinking so that we can have more revelation about how to properly live. Well, to set the stage for our conversation tonight, I want to play a little video clip from Jim Collins. Jim Collins is not a Christian as far as I know. Uh, No sign of that in anything I've ever read read from him. Uh, The most I have found about his spiritual life is he may be an Eastern mystic. Uh, he may have Christianity's background and just never mentions it. That's possible. Uh, I think many people have that kind of thing. But uh, Jim Collins is a noted business pundit. He's written a couple of books. Uh, the most notable ones are Built to Last and, um, and well, I forgot the Good to Great. Good to Great. Sorry, little mental uh, memory lapse there for a moment. Um, but those books are generally highly regarded by many people. Uh, and so he has standing in the business world. So I'm just going to play a little clip. And the purpose for this is to play off of it and, and, and show you what I think is a more profound way to think. Jim Collins sees some truth, but he doesn't seem to know what to do with it. So we want to take a look at what truth he sees, and then we'll talk about what Scripture says about how to play off of it. So here's Jim Collins. Disciplined people who engage in disciplined thought and who take disciplined action. This staging process is what we found in the good to great research. And notice what comes first. It's disciplined people. And it brings me to one of the key findings from all of our work. When Dick Cooley became chief executive of Wells Fargo in the late 1970s, he knew he would be facing the storm of deregulation. He knew that the entire banking industry would be upended when deregulation swept through. The board understandably concerned. 
asked Cooley, what is your vision? What is your strategy? Where will you lead us? How will you get us through the storm of deregulation? And Cooley had a wonderful answer. I don't know. Not only that, it's the wrong question. See, I am not going to first figure out where to drive this bus and then get people on the bus. No, I'm going to do it completely opposite. I am not going to figure out where to drive the bus until I've got the right people on the bus. And only once I've got the right people on the bus, the wrong people off the bus, and the right people on the key seats, then and only then will I turn my attention to the question of where we will drive this bus. The best executives we've studied always think first about who and then about what. It's not about just getting a great team. It's not about finding talent. It's not about getting great people. No. The key word is first. First get right people. First get the people on the bus. First think about who. Put who ahead of strategy, who ahead of tactics, who ahead of technology, who ahead of business ideas, who ahead of everything. First who. First who. First who, then what. Well, that's uh, some amazing uh, truth there. First who and then what? And I think that's very biblical thinking. The problem is that that's kind of where it ends. He doesn't really help us understand how to identify the right people and how to recognize where those right people should be placed in an organization. Well, that's where Christianity has a lot to offer far more than what just the pundits of the world have come up with. So I commend him for recognizing the importance of people. People trump technology. People trump strategy. People trump ideas. Treat people trump value propositions. That is so true. But who are these people that trump these things? And so tonight we want to focus in on how to build you know, with the right people recognizing that God has revealed a principle to us to guide us into finding those right peoples. So to kind of walk through this, let's begin with reminding ourselves of the two ways to build. There are two ways to build in a fallen universe. You build using Augustine's model of the city of man or the city of God. Of course, the city of God is God's will, God's way, God's timing, God's glory, whereas the city of man is all about man's will, man's way, man's timing, man's glory. So they're totally opposite. And if you are going to build according to the city of man, the only thing you have to build with is common grace, which is limited, and it only functions with human potency. There's no divine empowerment beyond human potency. And this is the fact that common grace exists is a gift of God's expression of his mercy. If common grace doesn't exist, I don't think we would exist. We common grace is the, is the glue that enables people to survive in a fallen universe while they're in a state of rebellion against God. And largely the world's in a state of rebellion. The, the number of people in the world at any one time who profess to be Christians and who truly walk out that reality seems to be fairly small. Historically, if you look at that, that seems to always be the case. It certainly seems to be the case today. 
So if you're going to build according to the city of man, all you've got is common grace. Now, if you're going to build according to the city of God, you not only have common grace, you have special grace, you have special revelation, you have scripture to guide you, and within scripture, you have a powerful principle to help you discern what a person's role is in God's creation, what God has created and called them to do, how to properly use them in an organization. And so the foundation of this idea is the reality that God is sovereign, intentional, and strategic. So let me just read you a text. I'm sure you're familiar with this. It's a very well-known text out of Isaiah that talks, this is God talking about himself and what he's doing and how he's doing it. He declares, remember the former things, this is Isaiah 46, 9 through 11, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. Sorry, Allah is not God. Buddha is not God. You know, any man-made gods are not gods. There's only one God. There is no other God. He goes and say, I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, which means I form things, I create things, and I bring them to an end. And from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. God works at his sovereign pleasure to accomplish his will. He's very granular, very specific. He says, calling a bird of prey from the east. You know, I'm sure that the, the idea here is there's a bird of prey wherever he needs them, and if he needs to call them from the east and he chooses to do it, he does it. The man who executes my counsel from a far-off country, he brings people and moves people around to accomplish his purpose. Indeed, I have spoken. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. It will be done. He is sovereign, intentional, and strategic. That includes down to every person, every organization, everything in God's creation is under his sovereign control. And Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 is very explicit when he's talking about the purpose of salvation, at least in part. We tend to think the purpose of salvation is to go and spend eternity with Christ in heaven. Uh, Well, that's Probably not the way it's going to happen. Uh, Christ is not going to be heaven in eternity. It looks like he's going to be on a new earth. It appears that we will be with him there. But in the meantime, God still has a purpose. Uh, God's purpose does not defer until some distant point in time. God is executing his purpose right now with each one of us in all that's going on in his universe. He's executing his will. So he says, we are his workmanship. He's created each one of us individually, specifically. And he says, we're created for good works. That means a work assignment. We have specific things that God has called us and created us to do. And he's prepared these things beforehand that we should do them. So this is the God that we serve. Now, we are very quick to look at that text and say, well, that applies to missions work or that applies to church work. But we are not quick to look at a workplace scenario or public policy or education or science, any other thing, and say God is sovereign over these things. Yet that's what scripture tells us. He is sovereign over everything. 
and everything is there for him to, to is to execute and carry out his purpose. So this is two ways to build. I think generally what we do today is we kind of blend these two ways together and kind of come to a compromise. We have a little bit of the city of man and a little bit of the city of God, and we think that's okay. And I think we need to be disabused of that and become radical people, radical to be building according to the city of God, his will, his ways, his timing, his glory, period. No compromise. That's very challenging. Well, before we jump into the C4 principle, I want to just make a few comments about common grace. We do need to understand this. So I want to give you a definition here. This is my definition of common grace. I'm not saying it's the best. It's just, I think, a working definition that has some value to it. So I commend it to you for your consideration. Common grace is the empowerment of God that enables all people on a rudimentary level to survive in God's universe for a period of time by obeying some of his principles. We have a power to, on some level, to tell the truth. We have the power to produce something that would be beneficial to someone else. We have a power to to say no to the urge to kill and be gracious to other people. We have the power to, you know, to not lie from time to time. Although it's easy for us to lie, we still have the power to be able to resist that. So common grace is a gift. And if we didn't have it, we wouldn't survive. We'd just kill each other. We just we would move from, from total depravity to utter, utter depravity. The difference between total depravity and utter depravity is total depravity mean, means we can never fully satisfy God's righteous requirements. But it doesn't mean that we can't do some good things, things that do align with him. We just can't do it all. God's standards are perfection. We can't do that. Utter depravity means we can never do anything good. And if we were utterly depraved, we'd just kill each other, murder each other, poison each other. We wouldn't be able to survive. So we're totally depraved. And because that the only reason we're totally depraved is because the gift of common grace. Otherwise, we would be utterly depraved. Common grace is a blessing available to all, both those who truly know Christ and those who don't know Christ, based on obedience to God's values and principles. We have the grace. For example, like Proverbs 16, 26 says, the laborer's appetite works for him. His hunger drives him on. That's a gift that we have hunger and that we connect hunger to work and doing something productive to earn the money to be able to pay for our food so that we can survive. That's a gift of God. That's That's common grace. That is the only way that we can ever use a pagan you know, and expect anything productive to come from it is this reality of common grace. Common grace facilitates limited, non-salvific obedience to God, meaning you can never, through common grace, do enough good works to merit standing with God. Remember, the, the law was given in the Old Testament to reveal mankind's total depravity. The law is perfect. There's nothing wrong with the law. The problem is mankind does not, in a fallen state, cannot obey the law perfectly. That's what Paul explains in Galatians 3. So that that potential to obey is there, but we in our fallen state can never do it. Keep in mind that what Christ did is he came and did for us what we could never do for ourselves, which is meet God's righteous standards, and and Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. 
And so now, once we have come to Christ and we have right standing with God, we still have a work assignment. We don't stop. We, it's not that works stop. Works continue after we've come to Christ. We're not saved by works, but we're saved to work. The creation mandate is a mandate to work, and that, that mandate's never stopped. We continue to have that mandate define and, and guide us into how we live. And so common grace gives you some ability to do a little bit of obedience to God, but it does not go very far, and it's certainly not salvific. Only Christ can affect the grace of God in us to save us. Common grace is facilitated by the Holy Spirit who restrains sin by keeping sinners from being as bad as they could be. This is the utter depravity end. You're either going to be totally depraved or utterly depraved. Utterly depraved means you can't ever do anything good. And through common grace, we can live at total depravity, which is bad enough. It's not equal to the righteous standards of God, but enables us to survive for a time and to be be able to do something productive, although not necessarily consistently productive. Common grace is the basis for some sense of security and confidence that one can live in a world that is innately in rebellion against God. We can walk the streets, we can go at a restaurant, and we can go shopping, we can go on trips, we can get in airplanes, and we believe that we probably will be reasonably safe. Although from time to time, people get surprised. They get murdered, they get shot, they get stabbed, things happen. So common grace is here. And it's, it's a gift of God, and it's fairly reliable, but there's a limit to it. And I'm going to get to that in a second here. But let me give you some examples of common grace found in Scripture. This is helpful to be able to look at Scripture and see this truth. Cornelius was an example of a person who had common grace. He, he, he displayed the grace of the fear of the Lord. And he gave alms and prayed, which is that's what the Jewish people would do in those days. So Acts 10 records this common grace he had. That was not salvific. He, he, is, he does come to Christ in the end of chapter 10, but at the beginning it tells you that he's living in this fairly high level of common grace. He's able to do a lot of things that are consistent with the Jewish worldview at the time. Well, that's, again, common grace. The Sidonians, they are... According to 1 Kings 5, they were very skilled with timber, and they helped Solomon build his temple, which with the virtue here was supporting the Old Testament ecclesia. The Jewish people were the Old Testament people of God, and so the temple was part of their religious ceremonial worship. So they helped them do that, although the Sidonians were not Jews. So they had common grace to help the Jewish people accomplish something that God wanted done. Then you had the centurion. You may remember the centurion amazed Jesus. This is one of the few times you see Jesus amazed. And what, how he amazed Jesus was he understood authority. He understood that all Jesus had to say to heal his servant was just say the words. You don't have to go anywhere or do anything. Just say the words. He knew the power of the word to direct, and he understood Jesus had the authority to do that. Jesus was amazed at that. That's common grace that he understood that. And, of course, Rahab the harlot in Joshua 2, she supported the Old Testament ecclesia. She protected the Jewish spies and protected the, the invasion into the promised land. So these are just examples where people functioned in common grace that you find in Scripture. It's not the only examples. 
But these are some simple examples. Now, I mentioned there is a limit to common grace, and that limit is found in Hosea 14, verse 9. So listen carefully to what this text is. This is the very end of the book. For the ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but transgressors are rebellious, stumble in them. Now, what he's saying here is they have some common grace, these rebellious transgressors, they have some common grace to walk in truth, but they will eventually stumble. What we don't know is exactly when the stumbling may happen. It can go a long time, or it might be very short. I think this is God's sovereign pleasure. We never really know for sure when the stumbling will happen, but we know that it will happen. So keep in mind, if you're building on the city of man, you're building on common grace, and you're gambling on how far a person will be able to go in common grace before they stumble. Because when they stumble, there'll be damage, a lot of collateral damage that could even be toxic to your company and take it under. So let me give you an example of common grace. You've heard the story. You probably have heard me talk about Congo Gumi. Um, other than the Roman Catholic Church, it's, it's historically the organization that's lasted the longest. It's lasted 1,429 years, from 578 A.D. to 2006 A.D. During this time frame, it had 40 CEOs. Now, there's, there are articles out there uh, on it. If you are interested and would like to, like to see one, just send me an email, and I'll send you a link, and you can go out and read it yourself. But the key to longevity was quite interesting. The articles point out uh, they were very conservative. Uh, They sought a stable business. They were in the construction business, and they built their specialty was Buddhist temples. Now, Buddhism has been around a long time, and it's largely not a growing worldview. It's probably growing about the rate of the world population growth. But it's very very steady. People that Buddhists tend to produce Buddhists who tend to produce Buddhists. So there's always a little growth happening and need for temple construction, repairs, as well as new temples. So that's a fairly stable business, at least traditionally. In World War II, it became kind of unstable. Uh, they shifted over from building temples to building coffins then. But so they were flexible. They were able to make some adjustments as the economy would change and vary. But they were very consistent about the CEOs. This was probably the key. The key was they always had a family member as a CEO. Sometimes men would, would, when they married into the family, they would change their name to the family name. Sometimes they had females leading, other times males. They had, they, they had both. But they always had a family member leading, someone who was in good health, somebody who was responsible, and they had the talent. So you can see elements of the C4. It's kind of a form of C4. And then they would commission. They they would call the people, and they would commission them to this work. So they were faithful to this. They were rigid in following this. They were flexible in the sense of how they how they would find people and bring them into the family, but they were rigid on what they required from those CEOs. That stayed them in good stead for 1,429 years through 40 CEOs. In the end, they failed because they started speculating in real estate using debt. That's where they failed. They abandoned, they kind of lost sight of really what they were about. And that's a very easy mistake to make. There are a lot of people have made it and they just stumbled in that. That's when common grace was lifted. 1,429 years, 40 CEOs, and finally the common grace is lifted and it's gone.
Congo Gumi was a, built on the Tower of Babel thinking. It was built on the city of man thinking. And in the end, common grace was retracted. And when it was, it was over. Now let's turn and talk about the strategic nature of God. I've read to you Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 11. So I just want to remind you, this is the foundation of our thinking. We have a sovereign, intentional, strategic God who is sovereign over everything. That includes the workplace. It includes every organization. It includes the church world. It includes missions. It includes families. It includes public policy. It includes schools. Everything he's sovereign over. So we have to be very settled on that reality. We have a sovereign God who is very intentional and he is very individual. Each individual, each person is individually called to play a role in God's universe and each has a specific work assignment, which means that for every work assignment, there is the right person. Commonly what I see and hear when people talk about they need someone, they'll say, I need a person to do such and such. That is not a good way to think about it. What you need is the person that God has called to do that job, assuming you've discerned it correctly. If you haven't discerned it correctly, well, then, you know, it's a good thing if God doesn't, doesn't listen to you and doesn't give you that person. It, when you see it, what you think is a need and there seems to be no provision, you need to back up and wonder and ask the Lord, Lord, have I seen this correctly? Am I seeing your will here? And maybe you might discover sometimes you're not seeing what you thought you saw. So this is the part of the challenge today is learning to think with God in every decision and every organization. I've been at this a long time. This is really hard. This is this is so counterculture, and even in the Christian world, the Christian world does not get this. I, I see this commonly where people will think they're holistic in how they're approaching things, and they don't get it. They don't get that God really is sovereign over everything, and He really has a will for everything. So we've got to get got to really work hard to continually check ourselves, challenge ourselves to look at what God is saying. He's always speaking. He always has a will. He has ways. He has timing, and he wants the glory. If you don't, we don't line up with that, then we'll get torpedoed, and we will miss it, and we will build the city of man instead of the city of God. So let's focus in on the C4 principle as the key principle to help us find our right assignment. We want to find it both individually and in whatever organizations we're part of. Now, I think most of you are probably familiar with this principle. If you've been around my teaching for any length of time, you heard it. There are multiple examples of it in Scripture. I'm listing them here. Uh, if you want more detailed discussion on these, get my book, The C4 Principle, and you can I go through each one of these examples and give you uh, some exposition from Scripture, show you where the C4 principle is found in these examples. I want to encourage you to wait, avail yourself of this opportunity to go deeper in this principle. Tonight, I want to just give you one example of this principle in Scripture and let you take a look at the power of this principle. It goes way beyond fixing immediate problems. It extends way beyond it, and you'll see that as we get into it here in a minute. So this is out of Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. This is uh, the first seven chapters of the book of Acts, which is 25% of the book. 
is dedicated to the first local ecclesia in Jerusalem. It was a Jewish community that included some Jews who lived outside of, of, of Israel. They lived, they were part of the dispersion. They were Hellenistic Jews, for example. There, but there were Jews from other places as well, many different places. You see, the Jewish dispersion was God's judgment on the Jews for their failure to obey the law. So notwithstanding the fact that they got dispersed, they maintained their ethnic Judaism, and they would come and celebrate the feast uh, every year. There were three major feasts, and they came on the day of Pentecost and were celebrating the feast when Jesus chose to send his spirit and began what we now call the new covenant. So the first seven chapters are dealing with that initial event. The Holy Spirit's come. The good news has come, and the good news was very simple. It's not what we say today. Today, we, we come up with some alternative wording. The wording that was used in Acts, Acts 2.36 to declare the good news was you can know for certainty. You, Israel, O house of Israel, you can know with certainty that this Jesus whom you crucified, God the Father, has made both Lord and Christ. That unlocked the Old Testament. Now the Old Testament could be understood in ways they had never understood it before. And so they're beginning to get grounded in what it is to live in the new covenant based on the power of the Spirit at work to both regenerate and dwell people to enable them to begin to obey God at a level they never could under the old covenant. So that's the context here. And things are very idyllic in many ways. You see, if you go back to Acts chapter 4, you see there was great unity, incredible discernment out how to utilize resources. A lot of really good things were happening. But in Acts 5, we discover there's some bad things happening, and the Holy Spirit was very serious with this community. And when these, this Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit, the, res, the result was they, were, they died on the spot. Now, I don't think we have any communities. I'm not, I've never heard of a community that's experienced something like that. But that shows you that, that God's sovereign pleasure can include things like that. I think we have a lot of mercy from him today. So now when you get to Acts 6, you discover there's something else wrong. Here's what's wrong. You have, you have them living together. Many of these people are from out of town. They're not able to work their normal jobs. They can't support themselves. They've stayed longer than they expected. They're having to share food with the brothers who live there. Some of the brothers are selling their assets to raise money for the community, and even though they're doing that and it's working pretty well, there's still something out of order. So let's read the text and see what it says to us. Now, in those days, the disciples were increasing in number. A complaint by the Hellenists. Now, that's, that's the Jewish people that, that lived in Greece. They were the Hellenists. Rose among the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, that's, that English translation is probably not a very good translation. It's actually in the daily diakonia. Now, that's important because diakonia is a key word that we want to focus on here as we go through this. You're going to see diakonia used in more than one way. So, But here, it clearly refers to food distribution, and the next verse will clarify that. And the 12, referring to the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples. And we got everybody together and said, it is not right that we should give up, that is, we should stop doing our calling, 
of teaching the word, preaching the word, to serve tables. Now, you can see diakonia is used again, only it's the verb form, diakonio. So you have the noun form, diakonia, the verb form, diakonio. So it's it's the same word. And, and diakonia, probably a better translation of the word, of the interpretation of the word, is to execute the commands of another. So that's a great way to think about it. You could execute the commands of another by doing food distribution. You could execute the commands of another by doing teaching. And you're going to see that in just a minute as well. Therefore, brothers, so now Paul or the, the apostles are telling the brothers, he's going to, they're going to give them the C4 principle and say, what you do is you pick out some people calling from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit. These are people of great character and of wisdom, great skill and capability, and we will appoint, commission them to this duty. So you have calling, character, capability, commissioning here. That's the way you select these people to fix this problem of food distribution. Now, this is a workplace problem, and yet they find a biblical principle is what you need here to discover who is supposed to do this. They're trying to discover the will of God, and they follow scriptural principles to do that. They go on to say, but we, that is we apostles, will devote ourselves to prayer and to the diakonia of the word. There's a diakonia of food distribution and a diakonia of the word, and they're both important. They both need the right people doing them, and you don't cross over. You stay in your lane, whatever you're called to do. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose these men. Now, I'm going to skip on down the next verse, verse 6. These, these they set, these seven men, they set before the apostles. Can you imagine this? Apostles are all sitting there, and they bring these seven men up to them, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, we do that today. We call that ordination. But today, we only ordain to church work. Here, these men are ordained to food distribution. Now, see, that's just a mind blower. Uh, so far, I've, I'm batting zero in my efforts to convince church leaders that this is what this says, and maybe we ought to consider uh, doing this. The best I've heard them say is, that, well, you've got a good point there, but we don't do that. That's the best I've heard. Some of them just flat out deny, no, that can't be what it means. But <clears throat> read the text. Look at the text. They brought these men in front of the apostles, and what did they do? They prayed and laid their hands on them to do this work they had been appointed to do. They have C4 to do. That's an amazing reality. Now, it gets better, and the word of God continued to increase. You see, the word of God is like it's pictured as something alive. It's growing. It's expanding. It's like something that's got life in it. It's increasing. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. Now, I've got that underlined. If you look at the verse 1, it says that the, the number of disciples was increasing. Now, it's multiplying greatly in Jerusalem. And then something even more amazing is said. It says a great many of the priests, the priests were some of the most adamant who opposed Christ, opposed the Christians. These people, who were the most difficult to win to Christ, became obedient to the faith. I love the way it says it. It doesn't say they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we would say. No, it says they became obedient 
to the Christian faith. Christianity is something to be lived. It's not just something to be an intellectual exercise. It's something to be lived. So let me just summarize you the powerful lessons here that are built around the C4 principle. Notice the C4 principle fixed a a food distribution problem and released all kinds of other blessings in addition to that. First of all, C4 principle enables you to do kingdom work, bringing order out of chaos. That is kingdom work. Secondly, the C4 principle is a tool to kingdom work. So whatever it is you're doing, you need to know wherever you are, you're looking for C4 people to do it. That's a key to kingdom work. Your authority is delegated. The, the apostles delegated the authority to find the C4 people to the disciples. We don't have the specifics of how they did it. It's just they did it. It was these people, they were brought to the apostles who then commissioned them formally to what they were called to do. There's no self-commissioning. That's generally what we do today is we self-commission. We just decide what we're going to do and go do it, and we don't get sent. Uh, I think one of the key things to learn about how God works is he sends people. He doesn't respond to self-commissioning well. Ministry is to all licit vocations. Diakonia applies to food distribution. It applies to teaching scripture. It is all licit activities. Obviously, you will not have, there's no diakonia to be a bank robber, but there's diakonia to all licit vocations. And this is why the C4 principle is so powerful. God has a will for every licit vocation, and he has the people assigned that he wants there. The challenge is, can we discover what his will is? We have workplace ordination. I don't think there's any way to get around this. This is what you have, and we don't do it. I have not seen any organization that claims to be a church that does this. I have seen some organizations that claim to be churches that try to recognize that ministry, diakonia, is to all licit vocations, but I haven't seen them go so far as to actually ordain people to various workplace callings. That's something we need to ponder and decide, are we going to step up and start walking with God more profoundly than what our typical paradigms are today or not? Then you have C4 alignment facilitating growth. And finally, C4 alignment facilitates evangelism. Wow. Have you ever thought that maybe the the reason that our evangelistic programs of today are generally not very fruitful? And I'm quoting a leading missionologist. In fact, I'm very gracious. He said they're a failure. That was his terminology. When I asked him, why do you think we spent 300 years and who knows how many thousands of people and millions of dollars to do all this missions work and basically – the percent of people in the world who profess to be Christians today is about the same as it was 300 years ago. You know, he said, we thought by now, we missionologists thought we would be 50, 60% of the world, not 30% of the world. But 300 years ago, it was 30% of the world, the best we could tell. And today is 30% of the world. We haven't moved the needle. And we thought we should at least 50%, move it 50%, maybe double but we haven't done it. I asked him, why do you think that is the case? Why have we failed? And this comment was, I don't think we understand discipleship. I think that's right on. 
I think we're living in a time where we really don't understand discipleship very well, and we're stuck in paradigms of Christianity that are not being fruitful. All right, so that's the illustration. I wanted to show you the power of the C4 principle. I think it's a great picture of what it can do to bring order out of chaos and a lot of other blessings flow when you start getting the right people in the right positions doing the right things. Uh, Jim Collins would be very blessed if he would learn this principle and start teaching this principle to his clients. All right, let me talk about the levels of worker. I talked earlier about the, the three levels of workers. Um, the first level is working for provision, second level is principle, and third is the power of the spirit. So I just want to <clears throat> point out to you how this correlates to the C4 principle. When you start at the very first line up here at the top, I trust you can see this, this level I call the sin management level. The motivation is provision. <clears throat> the way they view their work is it's a job. I need a job. Their C4 alignment many times is not very high. There may be a few exceptions here, but generally not very high. Even if somebody's walking in their calling and done and got good skill to do it and been commissioned to do it, their character is probably a torpedo in what they're doing. So the only thing they have to work with is general revelation. They, uh, they require a lot of management, and their effectiveness is probably poor to fair. Okay, So I, an illustration of that is shepherd hirelings out of John 10. is a picture of that. The next level is working for principle. So I call this the responsible level. So here they look at work now, talk about a career. And they see for alignment, oh, they begin to, there's some sense of that. They may not be able to note the principle or talk about the principle, but there's some, some sense of that. Their source of revelation is both general and special, creation and scripture. Uh, they do require some management and your effectiveness is better. It's fair to better, okay? And some examples of that would be like the Sidonians. That appears to be the kind they were they were construction workers and they seem to work fairly well. But the ultimate level is to work in the power of the spirit. I call this the empowered level. And the way they view work is a calling. Work is an assignment. Work is something I have a privilege to do. Work is not something I have to do. Their alignment with C4 tends to be much higher. They have three sources of revelation. Now they have creation, they have scripture. And they have the Holy Spirit in them. All three sources of revelation, they require almost no management. Stand back and be amazed. They'll run circles around everybody else. They'll amaze you. If you try to manage them, you're probably just going to get in the way. So get out of the way and leave them alone. The effectiveness is going to be excellent. And Daniel is a great example of this. So this is, I think, a good way to correlate the C4 principle to these levels of workers. All right, so I want to just uh, point out something else. If you're going to build an organization, any organization, it doesn't matter what it is, there's only one way to build according to the city of God. You have to build with C4 people. So I've got some imagery here for you. I've got, um, this is construction imagery. So consider you've got, this, is, this red part is ground, and this black is bedrock, um, and you're, foundation of your organization is this green bar on top of the ground. If you know anything about uh, stability, you know you can't trust that the foundation is going to be stable without putting some piers down to bedrock. That's the very best way to do it. When I built my current home, my dad told me several things. One of those things, he said, put your slab on piers. 
And that's exactly what I've done, and we've been here over 20 years, and you can look all over the house, there are no cracks. The doors and windows work just like they've worked from day one because the house has not moved because it's not on the ground, it's on the rock. So that's imagery for me for how to build organizations. I want to build with C4 people. That's the only way I'm connected to the rock is through them. So you want to, if you want to build an organization, you want to build one that's God-honoring, you want to build one according to the city of God, you've got to look at every key position, and you've got to start building with C4 people. The more you can build with them, the more peers you will have, the more stable your organization will be. Now, I've got a little table up here. I don't have to go into great detail. I just want to put it in front of you to give you something to meditate on, to ponder. We have five jurisdictions, the individual, family, uh, the ecclesia, which is we call that local church, the workplace, and, and public policy government. Okay, The objective should always be to find the the help disciple people, be disciples, you know, experience discipleship, express discipleship, things like this. So for the individual, what you're growing up, your objective is to become a disciple, a C4 person. That's your objective. Your family should be an incubator for disciples, helping you grow, find your way, find your C4. The ecclesia should be an equipper of disciples. The workplace should be the place where we express our calling. It's the assignment of disciples, and public policy should support discipleship. So that's how I think all of this fits together. C4 is at the core of all of this. Now, what destabilizes all of this is humanism. Humanism is pulling on us to build like the city of man, pulling on us away from the city of God to build as the city of man. So we have, first of all, our fallen nature is biased to this humanism. We have to fight that first. And then we have largely humanistic parenting. Uh, many of the parents are not modeling for their children how to properly live. And so it doesn't matter how much training the kid, the child gets, maybe at school or in a church setting or someplace else. When they go home, the parents tell her, tear it apart. So that's very destructive. So the ecclesia here is, <clears throat> is not helping anymore because they've got a confused gospel. The good news of Christ is not clearly proclaimed. We don't understand it well. The workplace is confusing because it's just given over to dualism because largely the the Christian community has not stood up and say, Jesus is Lord of everything, including the workplace. We're not saying that. And we're not saying Jesus is Lord of public policy. We're giving that over to the spirit of Antichrist as well. So our dualism, you know, and our humanistic dualism is just really impairing us from being able to get anywhere close to the city of God. So we're defaulting to the city of man. And many of us, if not most of us, call ourselves Christians. But there's not much evidence of that reality. So you're looking at this and probably saying, wow, this is really hard. And yes, it is hard. It's a very high standard. It's very difficult. But walking with God is a really high calling. And we have to we have to start working at it. Do not think you can go through a teaching like this and say, I got this thing. We'll fix this in the morning. It isn't going to happen. You're going to have to embark on a journey of learning and growing yourself. 
And then you've got to embark in a journey of transformation of whatever organizations you're part of. And you may spend the rest of your life laboring at this. And you may not see tremendous progress, but hopefully you will see some progress. So as you're working at this, let me give you some suggestions. So this is just suggested practices. Number one, as much as you possibly can build with C4 people. They are very hard to find. They're not easy, but God will, I've seen him drop C4 people in my client's laps from time to time. Not often, but from time to time, it's just been amazing what's happened. Boom, here's a C4 person. And even if they weren't all that mature, you could tell they're on the journey. They're growing into it. They're doing what they're called to do. They're growing in Christ. You can tell they're going to mature and be really, really good at what they do. Find those people. Be diligent about those as much as you can. When I ran the family business, one thing I came to after about 10 years of running it is I understood this is really what I was supposed to do. As the leader of the company, find the right people. I got that. It took me a long time. I didn't have Jim Collins to guide me, and I didn't understand the C4 principle. If I were doing it all over, I'd I'd have a very different approach, a different mentality about how to do it because I know so much more about how to think about these things than I did 30 years ago. So Bill will see four people. Next thing, if you can't find a C4 person, which that's going to be very common, look for a person with the potential to grow into a C4 person. Look for somebody who's humble, submitted, and teachable, someone that you can work with, someone that you feel the Spirit of God is drawing you to, You're sensing the leading of the Holy Spirit saying, you can develop this person. He will submit to you, and you can help him grow, and there's a place here for him. So that's the kind of thing. That's a very spiritual exercise, a lot of prayer, a lot of counsel, a lot of discernment to make decisions like that. That's why business is such a spiritual activity. We need to be praying every day for our business decisions because they are fundamentally spiritual decisions. The next thing is you want to recognize that if you wind up hiring any person that's not C4 and not humble, submitted, and teachable, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be probably a train wreck, and it's going to be it's going to cost you a lot of money, probably far more money than you realize. What I've seen consistently with clients that get impatient and just want to find somebody and don't think it's all that important they have a C4 person, consistently they regret that. That is not a good way to go. The best way to go is to wait patiently and seek to find the right people. C4 people are the right people. Okay, so I want to just uh, continue and uh, closing here our discussion of understanding the good news. Remember, I've been adding this on to this teaching because I think there's so much confusion in the body of Christ about the good news. We call it the gospel. What is the good news? And we it's very easy to be in the left-hand column, which is the dualistic column. It's very hard to be in the right-hand column, which is the holistic column. So I, each time I've been doing a, about four of these tonight, I'm going to do three. So I'm going to do this one on the workplace, then public policy and prayer. And I'm just going to very quickly make some comments here. If you're dualistic, like I was for so long, To me, workplace was nothing more than to make money. That's all it was, just a place to make money. I never envisioned it as a place to serve and worship God. 
And today I've got a revelation of it, and I try to share that with people. Generally, most Christian leaders just kind of stare at you. They don't really get that. That does not fit their paradigm of what Christianity does. You don't worship in the workplace. You worship in our building on Sundays. No, Jesus said worship is not in a place. Check out John 4. Worship is every place. Furthermore, worship is not an event. It is a lifestyle where we live in spirit and in truth 24-7, 365 days a year. It's always, every day is a day of worship. So we've got to think totally different about workplace and totally different about worship. That's, this is big, and this is very hard because it doesn't fit paradigms the way we think today. The next one is public policy. Uh, we've largely bought into the dualistic paradigm that all we worry about is the gospel. We don't we don't deal with anything else. We don't want anything to clutter up the gospel. It's just the gospel. That's what you hear. Uh, that was uh, if you've been following the Baptist, as I tend to follow them since I grew up Baptist. Uh, last year they had an opportunity to select a holistic president, someone that really thought much more robustly about Christianity, and they did not select him. They chose. Instead, someone who would compromise with the culture. That was the dualistic approach. You know, let's just focus on the gospel. Nothing else matters. And if you're that way, you do not believe Jesus is Lord of everything. You believe Jesus is only Lord of your salvation. That's it. you got a truncated gospel. You don't understand what the Bible says. What you're doing is my judgment is not true Christianity. So public policy is another venue for us to worship God. Because every venue is where we worship. We worship in spirit and truth. It's a lifestyle of worship all the time in every place. And finally, we have prayer. Prayer for for most people is trying to get God to do what, do what they want, get God to change things, to make them happy, to take care of their problems. That's not prayer. Prayer is a tool to align my will with God's will. It's to change me. It's not to change God. It doesn't, God doesn't learn anything we pray. He is, he's inviting us into fellowship with him, inviting us to humble ourselves before him, inviting to soften our hearts so that he can change our hearts and so that we, he can bring our heart into alignment with his will and his ways, his timing and his glory. That's what prayer should be. Don't use prayer to try to manipulate God. Use prayer as an opportunity to humble yourself before God. Okay, so that's uh, that's this session. In the roundtable, the virtual and the, the in-person roundtable, we will ex- do this exercise here. We'll talk about the levels of workers and talk about questions for reflection as well as questions for hiring, reviewing, promoting, and releasing. So I encourage you to be part of that. If you're not part of that and would like to be, communicate with me. I can make arrangements to help you find the group you need to be part of. Keep processing this. This is very challenging, but you need to know Christianity is a high calling. If you know Christ, you've been given an incredible gift. What what better thing can you do to say thank you than to be his servant? There's nothing better you can do. You don't serve to be accepted. You serve out of gratitude because you have been accepted. So may you have grace to see that. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the challenge of learning to think biblically about all of life. 
Give us grace, much grace to know that you really are Lord of everything. There are no exceptions. And that everything is a process of discerning your will and everything is a process of alignment with you. And everything is fundamentally a spiritual process of discerning what you want done. Give us grace to be your servants at a new level. Be... Give us grace for transformation. Give us grace for illumination. Give us grace for perseverance. Give us grace to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. So we commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So a lot of material. I'm going to try to get over here where I can see everybody now. Uh, Let's see. I'm going to make a few button changes here so we can turn on some cameras. Turn on your video. And okay, who's got a question? Raise your electronic hand or speak up. Questions? Facing the IQ problem, whenever people get in a group, their IQ drops. Is that what happens? That's what Dennis says. When people get in a group, their IQ drops 50 points. So do I need to call on somebody here? I don't want to put anybody on the spot, but we ought to have to get something going here. All right. So Josh Brannon, my faithful son for so long. I'm sure you have something to say. If you're talking, we can't hear you. Can you hear me now? Yeah, there we go. Okay, yeah, I've got an internet problem at the house. That's why I don't have a camera on right now. But uh, anyway, um, I don't think I, I don't know that I have any big questions. Uh, I think, you know, just to comment, I guess, or, you know, just wrestling with stuff is always, I think, the challenge based on where we're at as a company and where we've been um, is, you know, trying to, a lot of times I feel like we've got people in spots that maybe is, is not, you know, their perfect calling where they're located at, but it's what we have available for them. And, you know, I think there at times it's a more of a vehicle of discipleship and uh, probably not their long-term spot and their long-term stop, but uh, is a, is a good spot for, uh, for them to kind of get immersed, hopefully in a, in a, uh, culture is going to help them move forward and help them grow and, and uh, stretch them and deal with, you know, character deficiencies and things, you know, we got a lot of younger mm-hmm. people and uh, that type of deal. And so uh, I think that's the thing I wrestle with through that is, uh, you know, I feel like, you know, most of the time that we're working uh, for the majority of time, working with the people that we're called to work with that God sent us. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, sometimes that, you know, really feels like an uphill battle as far as from where people are at in their, you know, character development and competency and, and, and maybe mm-hmm. even calling. And yeah. so I don't know if you would comment on that at all, but that's just a, um, you know, I think an ongoing issue um, that I don't know necessarily what to do different, but, um, uh, but anyway, so yeah, that's, that's something. Well, I'd what I would with. encourage you to consider is for everyone in your company, you need, need to have, have a plan for them. You're, you're trying to see the call of God on them. And do you see that being expressed in your organization? So whatever position they're doing, 
you're working with them to move them into as full of an expression of that call as you can. And you may get to the point where you say, I just, you know, we can't, we don't have something for you. You, you, you're going to go beyond us and you need to support that. Let them go beyond you, help them go find that place where they need to be, where God's called them to. Some cases you may launch them into business that could happen. I've seen that happen. So I think so much of this is don't just have a plan for the organization, have plans for each one. So you're thinking about the call of God on each one and how it fits in now and how it's going to fit in in five years or 10 years and what your role is in helping them develop. Yeah, that's, that's good. And it's, it's helpful in having something probably being more, more strategic from a planning perspective on individual people would be smart. You know, the challenge in that is also, you know, seeing, depending on the level of health you're dealing with in somebody, sometimes, you know, it takes a little while to unwind what's yeah. going on and then try to see what their gifts are. And then also just for us as a company, being where we're at, you know, many ways young and small and, you know, that type of thing. Uh, I don't know where we're going to be at in 10 years, but, um, you know, we may have maybe in 10 years there's a perfect fit for that person, but today there's That's not. Right. You know, That's but, right. Uh, yeah. Anyway, but I may, think the plan is good practical suggestion yeah you may you may see that god has sent you somebody way ahead of need and so you're discipling along and and maybe you're thinking well i don't know if they're really going to be long term and all of a sudden things happen and you say oh i see how this fits i've I've seen that happen as well i remember an engineer that worked for me many years ago and left left me and went into an other field and he came back and when he came back, we really didn't have a need for him. And we thought, well, we'll let you do a project. And well, that project led to another project, which led to another project. Which led to another, and so, so 30 years later, he's <laughs> there. So I've seen that happen too. All right. Somebody else. Questions, comments. Dr. Chester, this is Greg. Hi, Greg. How are you doing? Hey. I'm doing good. Sorry, I'm I'm, in, I'm sitting in, in a dark car. Otherwise, okay. I turn my camera on. All right. Um, as you're talking about having a individualized kind of plan and purpose, mm-hmm. or rather, a plan and purpose for individual people, mm-hmm. right? Um, why don't why is that so difficult for people? Like I, I've 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 suggested that idea. Or maybe perhaps, do you have any tips on how to convince people to do that with their employees or or even their children? You know, there's some people. Yeah, I was going to say this. If I could just get them to do it with their kids, it would be a it would it would dramatically improve their yes. their situation. Uh, well, it, it just seems to be a real sticking point for people. It is. Uh, it's not modeled uh, either in families, in local churches, in companies, in any organization. It's generally not modeled. The best that we do is. We'll have apprentices, you know, and trainees and things like that. But as far as really looking at someone and trying to discover what is the call of God on this person, okay? And and I I am in relationship with them in some way right now. What role do I have to play in helping them find that call? Uh, that's just kind of foreign to us. We don't do that. I think this is what Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 is telling us to do. It says, do not neglect gathering yourselves together to stir each other up to love and good works. Well, love is sacrificially serving the purpose of God. We have to learn how to love. 
uh, love is not an emotion. So the enemy has very successfully confused us about love. So we don't know what that is. And then good works, we don't know what a good work is. A good work is a work aligned with the will and ways of God. That's what it is. When you have that level of definition of good works, well, suddenly a person can't define a good work. Only God can define it. And so we're trying to discover those good works God has called us to walk in. We as a community of Christians should be gathering to try to help each other do that. We don't do that. In fact, we never do things. I don't know of any community that does anything like that. So we have a paradigm of Christianity that's, that's really void of some key things right now. And perhaps one of the things the Spirit of God is doing is illuminating this and challenging all of us to step up and start looking for how can we begin to more uh, be more aligned with how we live. And how can we gather and do the things that Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 tells us? How do we do that? And so maybe that's what the encouragement is. So you see a problem. Greg, it's a problem in the families, it's a problem in the church, it's a problem in the workplace, it's a problem in in schools and everything. What role do you have to begin to make a step toward dealing with that problem? That's the question. And I think the the way forward is we've got to start in the ecclesia, start dealing with this and try to challenge ourselves to start wrestling with this problem and actually helping people align with the call of God. Thank you, sir. Okay, we can talk more later when you want. Yeah, but this is a big one. This happens to be kind of a, a little hobby horse for me. I, I ride this pony pretty hard. It's hard to get people to listen, though. All right, somebody else. Hey, Gerald, it's Philip. I think piggybacking on Gregory's comment is that uh, it's really valuing what God values and being willing to trade up because to do what Greg was talking about requires a lot of time and sacrifice and means you have to give up certain things to trade up to other things. And really, you wouldn't do that unless God's spirit is leading you to. It's very countercultural. Yeah. And those of you that uh, have read the Total Truth in part three of Total Truth, they talk extensively, uh, Nancy Piercy does, about the practices of the current local churches that are common, like the celebrity leader model uh, is a big problem. The truncated gospel is another problem. Uh, these things that have become habits in our, in our communities, we're going to have to address those because those are standing in the way. We're never going to be able to break free from that stuff and start being more aligned biblically until we get uh, more committed, much more committed to facing truth. Okay, somebody else. But Philip, I agree. I think the word sacrifice is a big one there. Celebrity leaders don't sacrifice for someone else. Well, and also, Gerald, realizing that when some God's placed someone under me, I have a stewardship and a responsibility to care for them and discover what's in them. When really yeah. the thinking is, I just need them to do a job. Yeah. Versus yeah. I'm called to disciple them and care for them and help them more align with God. Yeah. One of the things that Dennis has taught us is that abuse is when you use people inconsistent with the call of God. 
uh, you start thinking about that. Wow, um, that's a big responsibility uh, when you're a manager, or a leader, uh, even in the home. Uh, you you should be looking for divine design on every person and asking, what is it that God's called them to do? Why has He created them? He's got a purpose, and why am I in relationship with Him? What's what's my purpose? How do I serve His purpose in them? That's called love. Uh, if you want to love people, you help them align with God. That's how you love them. You don't love them by making them feel better. You don't love them by accepting whatever they decide they want to do. You don't love them by supporting their flesh. You love them by helping them align with God. You must really love me, Gerald. Love you deeply, David. <laughs> yeah, we need to go to the woodshed tonight. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> so... A couple of quick comments. Uh, okay. Just want to tie into what Josh had said in in relation to the slide where mm-hmm. you had said, you know, it starts as a job. Then if you think a little more biblically, it's like a career. Mm-hmm. But then when you really start operating in what God has created you for and aligning with God, it, you know, becomes a calling. Well, it is a calling, but it sometimes it takes us to see it. Yeah. And just commenting on what Josh had said, because, you know, when I look back at where you know, seven, eight years ago where I'm currently, you know, doing what I'm doing. When I remember, I remember when I was first there, even there a year and a half thinking, okay, well, I wonder what God's going to get me to really do, <laughs> you know, <laughs> wonder what God really wants me to do. And then as I started excelling and growing and thinking differently and being challenged and, you know, taking some of the materials through you and through, you know, go strategic and stuff, it became more of a, I could see myself doing this. And then now I see it like as I'm working with some of the guys and helping them like, man, this is, I was built for this. Mm-hmm. I was called to do this and it comes natural and it's challenging still, but I just see the, the shifting. Um, and I guess I tie that into what Josh was saying, because you may have someone that in 10 years, you, they could be ready for what they might be called to now, but they're just characters not aligned. And so mm-hmm. I can see that sort of thing taking place in my own life. So I just think it's, you know, people just don't don't think like this. No. They just don't. I don't see it often. I mean, I'm in a, I guess you call it a leader's group, you know, at a different place. And sometimes when I hear this, this father is talking about his son, he's getting ready to go to college. And just the way he communicates as though he talks to him, yep, it's your decision where you want to go. You can choose mm-hmm. this college or this college or this one. I'm thinking, you talk to your son like that? How about let's pray? I mean, I didn't say that. And see, what does God want you to do? Have you? And I don't know if he does or does not do that. And he was just making a comment. But now I realize when I hear that sort of stuff, it, I bristle a little bit. Just, you know, I don't, want, I don't want to talk to my children that way. Carl and I don't want to talk to our kids that way. We want to raise them and know mm. what are what. What are they called to seeing things mm-hmm. already? We see so-and-so responds this way and, you know, so-and-so responds this way. So it's just interesting to see. Yeah. Well, just an FYI, uh, you know, Carol was raised that way with her father told her early on, I'll pick out your husband. And, and she really submitted to that. And the result of that was I was discipled by her father to marry her and I think that was a tremendous way, you know, to be prepared for marriage. So the intention out, there's always been people that have seen how God works and try to line up with it. 
It's just we live at a time when it's hard to find those people, but they're out there. There are a few here and there. And sadly, most of the communities that we call churches don't seem to have a profound understanding of this. So you don't, it's not common in what you typically experience in those settings. But maybe God's calling you to step up, to be a model, be an example. Would that be okay? I think so, yes. Yeah, I, I think so I'll too. I end up in the, wood, in the woodshed if I say no. <laughs> well, I've watched you now, David, for what, seven, eight, nine years now? You've made great progress. You're on a good journey. You're on a good path. You're moving toward what God's created and called you to do. Yeah, I I absolutely agree with that. Okay, I like those kind of comments. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> anybody else? Got another few minutes here. Comments, questions. Gerald? Yes. Um, so what about when you don't have a choice? I mean, like teachers, for example, they just, they don't get to choose their students. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Who does? No. <laughs> but um, some schools, like at the classical conversations, it's more like a parent and student, which is good. It's a whole uh-huh. package. Yeah. But, um, they're kind of, they don't leave a lot. I, mean, what do you, uh, I guess you just yeah, pray, well, just pray that. Yeah, I, I, know. I, I, today I stood in front of about 40 students and um, I didn't get to pick them, but I trust that God sent them. And mm-hmm. I'm going to try to serve his purpose in each one of them to the best of my ability. And I pray for them. Okay. So, yeah, I, God is in control. He's sovereign. Things don't happen by accident. He's got a reason. Even when it's when it's painful and difficult, he's still there. He's got a reason. All right. One last question. Anyone? So, Gerald, this is Patty. Uh-huh. I, I kind of function outside of a, a normal work environment. And, and so, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm challenged. I, I feel like I'm, I'm operating. Um, I've been given a lot of favor with the, the person that's currently commissioning me in various assignments. Um, but it's, it's hard for me to know other than, you know, talking with you and, and some of the other guys at round table, um, if there are other things that I should be, you know, looking at, uh, pursuing, uh, I see some things opening up in a completely different avenue and I'm like, okay, you know, I, I don't have a preconceived idea about what I want to happen. I just, I want to be responsive to whatever assignment God, God wants me to have. Well, but I'm not always sure I've, I've, got clarity on it when you're when you're self-employed um the the risk uh is higher that you're going to miss something so you have to be more vigilant about staying connected and you have to know that you've got to have people in your life that will tell you the truth even when you don't want to hear it 
That's just critical. Yeah. What father yeah. figures will <laughs> well, what father figures do, if they really love you, is they're going to speak truth to you as they see it, and there are going to be times when you're just not going to like it, but you know you just got to do it. Yep. And if that father figure wasn't there, you would never do that. It's kind of like going That's to a true. to workout. If you have a trainer, that trainer is going to work you harder than you would work yourself. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll do it. True. That's a good yep. illustration. And you submit to them, even though you know that's what's going to happen. Okay. Yep. And that's, I think where you've got to look at this, whoever the father figures are in your life, you get under them and you, you let them tell you hard things and know it's good. And it's not yep. that you have to be, you don't have to be a masochist here. Uh, There'll be plenty of pain, but just be in those relationships and don't be surprised when they come at you with say, with something you say, I don't really don't like that. You know, if you carry that Trump card around, say, if I, I'm not going to do anything I don't want to do. Well, you've just given, you've given over to the city of man. You're going to live in the city of man. Okay. If you're going to live in the city of God, you've got to be willing to let, let God speak to you. Those hard truths through the father figures, because he wants to change you. He's about repentance, transformation, yeah. and that's not fun. Yeah, but it's fruitful. Most, yeah. <laughs> it's fruitful, but not fun. Yes. Right. Okay, okay, well, good session, Thank everyone. You. Hopefully, I'll see all of you in the roundtable in some setting, and we'll look forward to continuing processing this. So let me pray. We'll conclude. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for everyone on the call. Thank you for their heart to go deeper with you, their willingness to stand on the pain of questions, their willing to wrestle with truth, their willingness to, to go deeper and to not let current paradigms be the limit. Father, give them grace to really be open to your truth and to go wherever your truth takes them. Accomplish your purpose in and through them for your glory. We commit them to you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you guys. We'll see you on the round table and we'll be uh, back up in the first of April for our next online call. So bless you. Bye-bye. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye.